All right, we're in the Matthew class. We're in Matthew chapter 24. Uh, we're going to be verses 1 to 28 tonight. Let's open up the word of prayer. God, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for these men and women who come every Wednesday night to study your word, to be challenged and encouraged and to learn a little bit more about you, Jesus. And we just thank you, God, for this time that we have. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, tonight the, the lesson is called End. And... I don't want you to get your hopes up. Like, oh, great, we're, we're in. Wow. It, it's kind of like when a pastor, if people who are falling asleep during a sermon, a pastor says, and finally, and everyone's like, yes. And, and they start, you know, you know, capping their pen and they start, you know, checking their, you know, zipping their coat, that kind of stuff. He said, finally, or at long last. Well, this one's called end because Jesus is going to talk about the end and he's going to give some prophecies of his own. And we are in Matthew 24. This is a very commonly debated, misunderstood chapter in, in the Gospels. And uh, we're going to be in verses 1 to 28. But there's a verse we got to look at before we get in there. Because the disciples, they would have had this on their mind every time they stepped onto the Mount of Olives. Or it would be something like, oh, I'm here. And I know there's a verse that's talking about this place. And so while I'm here... Why don't we think about this? And here it is from Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley, and half the mountain moving to the north and half to the south. So already there is this end times expectation that somehow, some way, when God his Messiah, his warrior, whoever it is is going to come. God's representative is going to come in the end times. The Mount of Olives is going to play some kind of a role. So it has kind of a pregnant importance to it. Like there's something about the Mount of Olives that, yes, it's kind of like in the same concept of every successive son of David. Is he not just a Messiah, but the Messiah, that great anointed promised son of David. And so... The Mount of Olives, they already had that in the back of their mind. Ah, yes. So we're not surprised here. In, in verses 1, 2, and 3, Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things? He asked. Truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. And that's the case. We're going to find out A.D. 70, Rome's going to come through and boom. And it's going to knock it to the ground. The only thing remaining for that time period now is the Western Wall. But that's not the temple. It's called the Wailing Wall by some. I've been there. I put a prayer request in there. Wore the yarmulke, that kind of stuff. It was like a retaining wall outside the temple. That's still standing. But the actual temple structure, gone. Now Jesus, and it continues in verse 3. Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives. And check out this question they asked him. This is if this Mount of Olives was in their mind. The disciples came to him privately. So again, if there are crowds all around, and Jesus had a lot of crowds, here is the disciples getting Jesus by themselves. So they could ask him a question one-on-one -on -one or 12 to one or whatever. They're just, this is not something the common folk is saying. They're asking this privately. Tell us, they said, when this will happen. And then check this out. Look how... Look how educated this question is what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age i love this is such a great question 
It's as if to say, we're on the Mount of Olives. God's promised Messiah in the day of the Lord end times is going to come upon the Mount of Olives. So Jesus, while we're here, remind us when this is going to happen again. Because we know you're coming again. Now those aren't my words. I love this. What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? What do you mean my coming? I'm right here. Well, so there must be something more to that. The mountain, in fact, didn't split. So something else is going to happen. You're right. So we have a couple points here on our page. Number one, something, I can, something greater than the temple indeed. Wow. Now, you've got to understand, Herod's temple was a beautiful thing. We have uh, the, Solomon's temple got you know, raised to the ground, 586 B.C., um, the Babylonians came through, wham, knocked it all down. And then we have, you know, the, the exile. We got the Ezra and the Nehemiah get to come back. And they build, a, a, they build the second temple. And this is a great thing. And so King Herod the Great comes on the scene close to the first century and says, all right, we're going to have a big building project. And if you think all the, the, the building in terms of like the, the, the Mount Prospect displays, it's like there's two seasons, winter and construction kind of thing. And no matter where you go, you think that's a big building project. The building project that King Herod the Great undertook was massive. He just took, took that second temple and expanded it and made it beautiful. So they're on the scene and they're like, wow, look at this. This is what it's all about. But you see, the common folk Judaism put a lot of, of, of stock into the temple because that's where God chose to dwell. But Jesus, he's already told us back in Matthew 12, one greater than the temple is here. And I love their great question. The best questions are asked in faith as you watch God work and unfold his plan. They're on the Mount of Olives. They've got this end times expectation from Zechariah 14 about the Mount of Olives. So they're like, okay, Lord, in faith, we're going to ask you this question. Because we know it's going to be you coming back to us. So when's it going to happen? When are the end times going to happen? When's it all going to unfold? Now, it is quite possible they ask this question thinking, yeah, you're the Messiah, so at some point you're going to whip up on Rome and you're going to get us out of our pickle. That's possible too. But I found the best questions are the ones that are asked in faith as you watch God work and unfold his plan. You're sitting in this life and you're realizing, God, why do I have this desire? Why, do I, why am I consistently praying about this? And yet nothing has happened yet. You haven't answered yes yet. Why? Why is all this happening? And why are you causing me to want to pray this? What are you trying to do in my life? I have complete faith, God, that you are there, that you are real, that you are good, that you are powerful, that you've got me. And why, God? I'm asking this in faith, knowing that you are in control. You're working your work and unfolding your plan. Those are the best questions. I like this question they ask you. Some commentators might say, oh, well, they're asking it this way or they're asking it that way. I'm not worried about that. I'm looking at where they're at and the kind of question they're asking. They're taking life as God gives it to them and trusting God with it. That movie, The Prince of Egypt, has a song about looking at your life through heaven's eyes. It's kind of cool. That's the prologue. Number two, we got the start of contractions. Contractions. Yeah, I know. I famously, my, my wife, uh, she's she's been pregnant many times, and and I just remember, 
Oh, we busted our tail to get that crib put together. Everything ready to go, and finally, Joel, Joel, get your stopwatch. I'm like digging out my phone. Okay, where's the stopwatch? You know, function on the phone, trying to figure this out. Like, okay, and I gotta start timing these things. Yeah, that's our air conditioner friend. I gotta start timing these things. Now, the whole pregnancy contraction birth pangs thing, that's just not me being cute. It's in the text. So let's read the text, 4 to 8, Matthew 24. Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, a kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of the birth pains. So when my wife is sitting there, we kept trying to time them. And we're trying to go through our minds saying, okay, at what point do we call the hospital? At what point do we get in the car? Okay, it's here's a contraction. Boom. Now I'm, time it. Now we're going to wait. And okay, how many minutes? And then all of a sudden, okay, oh, again. Okay, boom. All right, so that was four minutes. All right, that's not bad. All right, not bad. And yeah, here I am sitting there with like holding a Twinkie or something and timing these things. And she's going through agony. And eventually you get down to a certain amount of time where they're happening a lot. They're okay, time to go. Get the bag you packed and get in the car and let's go. Be done with it. The birth pains, these contractions, they are not pleasant. But you don't focus on them. You know that they're a herald of something to come. And until then, you're waiting for that something that is going to come, even as the pains keep getting a little bit more frequent and a little bit more painful, etc., etc. And again, I'm saying this as the one holding the stopwatch. Take that as you will. All right. So Jesus talks about a lot of things. So, so many people, so many armchair theologians, they like to look at these verses and go, oh, yes, now I can try to plan when the end is going to come. It was important to the disciples. It's important to us. Okay, who's the Antichrist? What is, what is 666 going to mean? When is this going to happen? Who's Babylon the Great? Maybe I can make the book of Revelation come to fruition in the pages of my newspaper or website. Here it is. Jesus just flat out says this. There's going to be a lot of people who are going to say a lot of things. He might have continued hawking a lot of products selling you in a lot of miracle, magical, I'm the Messiah, buy my holy hanky, holy water cures. He didn't have to go there because there's a lot of people that are going to be false. They're going to say the right things just to deceive people to following them. In fact, when the end comes, we're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. Well, that doesn't tell me much. There's always wars and rumors of wars. Okay. Don't be alarmed. Such things must happen. The end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation. Well, gosh, when has that not happened? Kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. This isn't about climate change. This is about Jesus saying this is what's happening. There are famines. There are earthquakes. There are all these things, tornadoes. Yeah. All these are the beginnings of the birth pangs. Now, these things say, hey, guess what? Pay attention. God is on the move here. This, anytime you see something bad, the natural reaction is not to go, oh Lord, you're going to come right now because something bad is happening. You're going to wear yourself out with that. If that was you, there's been 2,000 years of that since Jesus. Plus, that's not the case. It's not how we are to look at history. We're not to look at history and go, that's it. Here comes, here comes Jesus. Here comes Jesus. 
Because if anybody could ever say, no, you're being silly, Jesus is not coming. Because we're going to find out the Messiah is going to come in a way that everyone's is, whoa, it's going to be evident. And it's going to be extraordinary. And it's going to be something that is absolutely unquestionable. So just because bad things happen and continue to happen. In fact, there's, there's a branch of theology that, that used to think the world's going to keep getting better and better and better. That all of a sudden Christ is going to come. And it gained a lot of popularity right before World War II. And then World War II happened. And they realized, oh yeah, there's still a lot of evil. There's still a lot of, uh, you know, ick out there. Some people like to resurrect that. And then things like 9-11 happen or something like that. And they realize, oh yeah, evil is out there. Wow. Well, I got on your page here. We never know how near the end is. In fact, if you want to take the word of God at face value... When is God, when is his kingdom going to come? The only answer you can give, theologically speaking, is this one word answer. Next. On God's calendar, his second advent, his second coming is next. That's it. He's near because it's next. God's not going to theologically, in terms of salvation history, do anything else before that. That's next. We never know how near the end is. Then I use a driving example. As God drives history down the highway, wait for the exit. My goodness, we turn on the news, we get on our website, we get, the, we get those little notifications to our phone telling us these headlines that we're expected to read. And we're like, oh, my, that's it, that's it, that's one more thing. Oh, what's this world coming to? And we get off at that exit. And then we realize, oh, uh, okay false alarm. I'm going to get back on the highway. And then something else happens. Boom! I'm going to get off of that exit. The end is here. Here it is. No. God's taking us down the highway. He's driving history down the highway. We're waiting for his exit. The one that he's going to lead us to. Stand firm. 9 to 14. So we've got the prologue. We had our contraction started. But Jesus continues 9 to 14. Then, and he gets really dark here. Jesus is, you know, ugh. I don't like the things that Jesus is predicting here for the disciples, but he's doing it. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. And you will be hated by all nations because of me. Wow. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Then the end will come. So i got to ask this. And because we're recording this, you might need to say your answers louder than you might. What does love communicate? If someone says to you, I love you, and take romance out of that equation. What does, that communi- what does love communicate? Character, yeah, what else? They care about you, you bet. What, what else does love communicate? If I, say to, if I say to somebody, I love you, and then turn right around and say, I love tacos, <laughs> is that, I get how the tacos are going to like that, if tacos like anything. But what does that communicate to that person? You see, love communicates I've got food on the brain now, like a shelf life. 
Like there's something about love that is a staying power. It is like an allegiance, especially with married love. A man says to a wife or a wife to her husband, when they say, I love you, that is, I have chosen you. Come what may. You know, we say in the old timey weddings for richer, for poorer, for in sickness and in health, all all that kind of stuff. A married love is an active allegiance that does not stop. That's an appropriate love. Love implies a choice of will, of allegiance towards that person. I love you. That means I'm committed to you. That means you and I are one in purpose. We are one, in a biblical sense, one flesh. We are coming together. And so keep that idea of love. Love, to to, to the little teeny bopper, love is a noun. Oh, I love, I love, I love, I love being in love. I'm in love with the concept of love. And you get a little bit older and that person starts to meet that special somebody. Usually it's a gal meeting a guy. And she begins to, to, to dream and daydream about writing his last name after her first name. Oh, one day I'm not going to be Miss So-and-so. I'm going to be Mrs. Such-and-Such. And she'll write that down. And this puppy love, oh, you look at that. And, and we, we who, who have been married or been in relationships for many years, we go, oh, what happens when the first sign of trouble comes? We know those of us who have tasted that love. Love is not a noun. When love is just a noun, there's just some cute immaturity about it. Just like when you say, what's more romantic, young love or old love? Seeing two kids at the uh, two 20-something-year-old at the, at the coffee shop and they're in each other's eyes and that kind of stuff. And, oh, look at that. Or the couple that's in their mid-80s still holding hands, walking around town. That is romantic right there. Old love beats young love any day of the week in terms of romance. You see... The deeper you go in life, you know that love is not a noun. Love is a verb. Love is what you do. It's also who you are. So keep that in mind when Jesus predicts the love of most will grow cold. What in the world is he talking about? What does love mean again? This allegiance, this active choice that I am on this team, that I am identifying myself with you and that we are marching together. This love, this commitment, this allegiance. You see, it's kind of like in the parable of the soils where the thorns come up and that, that seed is choked away. It's like, oh, God, I came to you, Jesus, and I thought I was following you, but life is so hard and I had it easier doing this or doing that. And they stop. You see... Love, by definition, should not be growing cold. But this love is. Everlasting? Yeah, everlasting. It sticks. There's a staying power to love. That's why we say those things in a wedding vow. Okay, you got sick. That means I'm going to stop loving you. No. Now your love isn't just love. It has teeth. Now that love is something. That love has been tested by the fire adversity and it's come out pure. It's come out holy and wonderful. Wow. The love of most will grow cold. Endure like that. 
You see, we're gonna, Jesus is going to pose a thorny issue here later on in this text about who's the one that's going to be saved? The one who endures. How do you endure? Don't let that love grow cold. I've got this rule about coffee. I don't drink cold coffee. And a second rule, a corollary to that rule is I don't drink iced coffee if I can help it. I like my coffee black and I like it hot. But I learned something about black coffee. I don't like black coffee when it's cold. Someone's, when I had to have an iced coffee one day, oh, get an iced coffee, they're on sale. All right, give me a black iced coffee. Bad idea. Horrible. Just horrible. I, I thought, oh, this is terrible. You said you wanted a black. All you do is drink black coffee. What is your deal? I did, this is terrible. I can't do it. For some reason, the nasty bitterness of coffee is completely hidden when it's hot. But when that sucker is cold, I'm like, oh, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a hypocrite. Give me the cream of sugar. I want the vanilla. I want the hazelnut. Iced coffee. Make it as girly and froofy as possible. <laughs> Pour it on. Whipped cream. Bring it. I don't care. I'm already drinking calories anyway. Let's have at it. Hot coffee? You ain't putting nothing in there. You can have a little pot of extra black and pour that in there. When it's hot, I don't taste the nastiness. But my rule is, I don't drink cold coffee. But if I'm not staying diligent, okay, I had a cup of coffee the other day. I was sitting down on the couch, and my son came around, and my daughter came around. Read me a book, Daddy. Let's play this game, Daddy. We're playing a game, and then I'm like, hold on, kids. Before we do the next chapter, I'm going to wet my whistle here and take a drink. And I'm going to take a drink, and I realize that my coffee is now cold. Now, my one rule is I let it get cold. I will drink that coffee. It got cold because it's my fault. All right? For inactivity or just whatever, apathy, whatever it was, I will then drink that cold coffee and not complain. It's my own fault. I can't, at least I'm not saying, like, you're serving me cold coffee. Seriously? I asked for coffee and you're bringing me that? No, I would never do that anyway. But still, that coffee, I had allowed it to grow cold. And it was not a pleasurable coffee experience. That's because your kids are more important. Well, of course. My kids are more important. Don't let your love grow cold. The love of, again, not my image. Coffee just happens to fit nicely. Not my image. It's Christ's image. The love of most. So he's talking about these people not standing firm, not enduring the love. Their love is growing cold. So I need to worry about loving in a way that God wants me to love. And who does God want me to love? Shout them out. Who are the people Jesus tells us to love? Okay, the Lord your God. Okay, Deuteronomy 6. Okay, the Shema. So love God. Who else? Your neighbor. Okay, Leviticus. All right. Love your neighbor. Who else? Oh, so many people are like, oh, if you only knew what my spouse was saying and how they treated me, if you only knew the kind of abuse I had to undergo and all the, 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 all the talk and all the, if you only knew what I had to deal with. I, someone could say, well, are you saying that your spouse is treating you like an enemy? Enemy? That doesn't even begin to describe it. What does Jesus tell you about that? Are you to love your spouse even when they're a jerk? Love your enemies. Who am I supposed to love? I need to love them, but I don't love them God's way for my glory. I've got to love them for God's glory. I don't love that person God's way, appropriately God's way, and all of a sudden go, now that's the kind of person I am. Everyone take a look. No, no, that's, that's not denying myself. So stand firm. Verse 14 answers a common question. 
And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. It's like Jesus is saying there's a lot of junk that's going to come. A lot of anger, a lot of bitterness, a lot of enemies, a lot of strife, a lot of war. All these things, that stink. But the gospel is going to be preached. And it's going to go to all the goyim, all the Gentiles. That great Isaiah concept of being a house of prayer for those very Gentiles, that's going to happen. So any of you with the stopwatch who were saying, oh, when's it going to come, Lord? When's the end times? Well, that hasn't happened yet. And yes, technology keeps making communication easier. I can see God using social media or using, I mean, it used to be like Betamax videotapes or, you know, three millimeter. Now we've got digital stuff you can download on a phone. That's not just a phone. It's an alarm clock and a video screen. And your phone is many things. I could see God reaching the world through social media, totally, in a way in which he could not do 2,000 years ago. 20 years ago, you're right. So it answers the common question, when's it going to be? Jesus says, all right, you want to know when? Here's when it's going to be, when the gospel is preached everywhere. Now, I don't know what everywhere looks like, but Jesus said all nations. So if you, you want to pick nits, you've got to pick Jesus' nit at that point. Say, well, Lord, what do you mean by that? I'm not going to tell you yet. I don't know. Stand firm. He's going to quote Daniel. Daniel 11, 31 to 35 says this. His armed forces will rise up to, desec- to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. With flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant. But the people who know their God will firmly resist him. Those who are wise will instruct many, though for a time they will fall by the sword or be burned or captured or plundered. When they fall, they will receive a little help, and many who are not sincere will join them. Some of the wise will stumble so that they will be refined, purified, and made spotless until the time of the end, for it will, sit, for it will still come at the appointed time. The abomination that causes desolation. The next section is abomination, verses 15 to 21. Jesus says, So when you see standing in the holy place... The abomination that causes desolation, spoken up through the prophet Daniel. Let the reader understand. Seriously, Jesus, the reader? Was that a question that wasn't really said? How could Jesus have said that? Did Jesus know that Matthew was going to write this down, that Matthew would have readers? Don't overthink it. What reading is Jesus doing? He's pulling out that metaphorical scroll of Daniel. Let that reader understand, the one who's been reading about this abomination that causes desolation. Now read that and understand, it's going to take place. In one sense, and then at the end times, in a full and final sense. Okay? Let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in the winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great distress, unequaled in the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. I've got it on your page here. Daniel's prophecy was initially fulfilled in the Syrian or Seleucid emperor Antiochus IV. He called himself Epiphanes, which is to say, I am the appearance of your God. I am Antiochus Epiphanes. You know, there's a church. There's a church holiday, Epiphany. That's what he called himself. So already, this guy's got an ego issue, and he's going to call himself God. Okay. 
he defiled, he defiled the altar outside the temple and the one inside the holy place. So remember, there are two altars in the tabernacle and two altars in the temple. The first altar is the big one, the one that's outside in the, in the courtyard. And on that altar, sacrifices are made, the animal sacrifices. And twice a day, once in the evening, once in the morning, a lamb is constantly burnt as a burnt offering. Remember that image. And there's a second altar. An altar is inside the holy place. Interesting that Jesus says, in the holy place. Not the most holy place. What's in the most holy place? The Ark of the Covenant. And just the Ark of the Covenant. But inside the holy place, you've got the table of showbread. You've got the candle set up. The, the light, the candle stands. Okay, and you've got the altar of incense that is having this smoky thing go on so you can't see past it into the, holy, the most holy place. And that incense symbolizes the prayers. So this Antiochus is going to go and he's going he's to tarnish the outside. So instead of a lamb being roasted on the fire all day as a sweet savor to God, it's the unclean pig all day and all night. Just trying to poke a finger into God's eye. And then the most holy, almost most holy part of the whole temple complex, that altar inside the holy place, he put a statue of, Ju of Zeus, an idol of Zeus, right there. When the Romans later leveled the temple, they offered sacrifices to the gods on the now desecrate, desecrated grounds, and then they declared Caesar one of the gods, right there on the temple mount in the rubble of the temple that used to exist. Wow. Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2 says this, Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. So, Jesus is, there's a tension here because this prophecy is going gonna, is gonna to take place twice. In one sense, Jesus is talking about the near future where Rome's going to come in, A.D. 70, and they're going to win the Jewish war and the war against the Jews, and they're going to level Jerusalem, knock down the temple. And again, only that portion of the Western or Wailing Wall exists of the city wall. But then we get 2 Thessalonians. And we're not dealing with Jerusalem at this point. We're dealing with someone that, that we, we, we're told in Scripture is the one who is not Christ or against Christ, anti-Christ. He's going to come just like the ancients did and set up his place to defy God and say, I am now God. Worship me. That abomination that causes desolation. So number one here, like many biblical prophecies, behold the already and the not yet. There's a tension there between what God has and what God will. I used to embrace this, 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 uh, this tension in the early days of, of my having a neurological disease, and I would struggle day by day, and I would learn, my, my theological rendering of that was, I called it baby steps. And I would say this to myself, it's in... The big victories of life that God shows you that he can. But it's in the smaller, more everyday victories of life that God shows you that he will. 
And I learned that as I struggle with my multiple sclerosis, and I, I can't even say the word sclerosis without having my tongue seize up on me, it seems like. But that's just one of those words. It's ironic that people with MS can't really say that word too well. But there you go. There's our, there's our friend again. But yeah, that tension between God, you already have done this, and God, I know you will do this. These prophecies, so we know like the, the Emmanuel prophecy of Isaiah. At first, it is Isaiah's kid. Maher Shalaz Hashbaz or something. Yeah, that's Emmanuel. But in a full and final sense, Matthew chapter 1, it's Jesus. The virgin will be with child and call him Emmanuel. There's an already and there's a not yet. And until the not yet happens, we live in that tension between God has and God will. So we wait with expectation, knowing that God will provide. And we see him moving the chess pieces in our life and we wonder, God, what's next? But we don't wonder with doubt, we wonder with faith, we trust him. And the dire urgency that will unfold in AD 70 and Revelation 13, Jesus describes it pretty rough. Pregnant women, nursing mothers, my goodness, they're going to have a rough time. The Sabbath, now at this time in history, the Jews allowed themselves some Sabbath, um, they gave themselves some flexibility. Because they were being attacked by people, if they were attacked on the Sabbath, the, the, the rabbis allowed the Jewish people to defend themselves. They could run away as well. They didn't have any distance restrictions like they normally would. You can only go such and such distance on the Sabbath. No, at this time period, on the Sabbath, you can fight, but only to defend yourself. You can't go on the attack. So that's not what Sabbath is talking about here. What Sabbath are we talking about? Think, for, think of Matthew's audience. Hebrew followers of Jesus. The Sabbath is holy. The Sabbath is different. The Sabbath is, I'm focusing on God today. And now, if they attack on the Sabbath, boy, that's going to be rough. Not because we can't do anything about it, but because we're totally surprised. We were going to focus on God. And here we got to now deal with this. It's a dire, Jesus is speaking of a dire thing. An urgent thing. Life is going to get tough. Any person who thinks that when I come to Jesus, life's going to get easier, needs to take a bath in these verses right here. Because life is never going to get easier just because Jesus is your Savior. Yeah? Some key questions are going to be answered at that point. You don't have to deal with certain things you had to deal with before. But easier? What a wrong way to look at God. God, you now exist to make my life fun to make my life a little bit more meaningful, to help me to get a hold of myself and my situation better. You exist, God, to make me feel better about me. You exist, God, to help me accomplish all my goals. Wrong, 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 heck no. No. This life is not about you anymore, if it's about Jesus. The same mindset that says you can't serve God with the same urgency you serve your money, that same mindset says you can't serve yourself. And the Bible calls that serving of the self sin. You can't serve that idol, you, and serve God at the same time. That's called hypocrisy. We can't be that way. Finally, deception, 22 to 28. And if those days, and Jesus, he gets hardcore here. He opens up doors that, oh my goodness, if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. You mean God would just kill everybody? You mean God would make it so hard that people are like, I just can't take it anymore? I don't know. 
I'm trying to take this verse at face value. It's as if to say, if that was God's plan, that's what was going to happen. I don't know. Jesus went there. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. Comma. But for the sake of the elect. The elect? Ah, yes. Remember last week? Many are called, but few are chosen. For the sake of those chosen, those days will be shortened. So, anyone who tells you, oh, the great tribulation is going to be this many days and that many... Listen, numbers are fun and numbers can be just as symbolic as the next thing. All I know is you think you know about the end times in terms of times and dates and whatnot. You probably don't. You most likely don't. I'll just be bold. You don't. But Jesus gives us a clue that says God's will is for this suffering that's going to happen not to go on forever. And that encourages us as we suffer. That encourages us as we struggle with, with what the author of Psalm 73 does. Why do the wicked have all the fun and I struggle? Why do these people who don't even know God or care about God, they're just fine? Why do I struggle to have kids and they don't? Why do I have this disease and they don't? Why as a God, Jesus follower, I have this and they don't? Or I don't have this and they do. And we're like, God, why aren't you taking care of me that way? We struggle with that. All we know is God in his sovereign plan is cutting that time short. He planned that time is short. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, there's the Messiah. There he is. Don't believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. It's as if Jesus catches himself there. Theologically speaking, the ones that God has chosen cannot out-choose God. Think about it this way. This whole predestination free will thing comes down to one question. And you have to answer this question for yourself. I'm not going to answer it for you. I can tell you how I believe. Who is the chooser? If it's me, then something more powerful or more brilliant than me could lead me to choose otherwise. Whether it's a persecution, whether it's a tribulation, whether it's someone who's smarter than me, and there are many. But if God's the chooser, who's going to out-choose God? Who is going to make it so that God's choice is going to be rescinded or some Supreme Court's going to reject it or something like that? No, that's not possible. So that's why Jesus says, if it was possible to deceive the elect. Jesus is not, is not assuming it is. He's assuming it's not. The ones that God has chosen, Jesus earlier prayed in John, that all of the, all of the ones have come to me, no one would be able to snatch them out of my hand, out of my Father's hand. Deception He's painting this picture that the elect, in an ultimate sense, cannot be deceived unto apostasy. That there's a security there. Otherwise, Jesus would have just kept going. But he he, he hedged it here, if it was possible. See, I have told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you, there he is out in the wilderness, don't go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms. Doesn't matter where he is. If he's out there in the wilderness or he's inside a house, if he's as part of some grand, huge social media extravaganza, or if he's in some little secret society inside someone's house, you've got to pay the special price to come in. Know the handshake. You can meet your Messiah. No. Don't believe it. Why? For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass. By the way, if you're in that wilderness, you know that something is dead when you see the vultures going, eh, and circling all around. You know something is dead. Vultures don't eat 
live things. They go after a carcass. So he says, wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures were gathered. Okay. Deception. That time will be full of evangelism and distress. Wars, famines, persecution, hatred, and false prophets. It would become so bad that if not checked, nobody would survive. But before this sounds too far-fetched, remember, we all just survived the 20th century. The worst century of all. By far. Which saw two world wars, the threat of nuclear extinction, and has seen more Christian martyrs than all of the previous centuries combined. No amount of deaths in any other century put together can match the 20th. It's horrible. Horrible, horrible, horrible. And we all just survived that. Jesus is describing a day that's just horrible, horrible, horrible. A couple things here. God is sovereign over all. The Messiah's second advent will be unmistakably evident and extraordinary. I don't know how this is going to happen. We, we, hear, we hear scripture talk about a trumpet's going to sound and he's coming on the clouds and all these things. I don't know how that's going to look, how everybody will know, but everybody will know. Jesus is saying here, yeah, so it's lightning over here, but yeah, you can see it everywhere because the sky is the sky. Okay. Yeah. It doesn't make sense for the Messiah to come back. The greatest moment of all of salvation history in terms of excitement. And all of a sudden people are like, was that it? Are you sure? Well, get on Facebook and find out. See what, they're, see, see what people are checking in or what people are saying. or Check your Twitter feed. I mean, come on. What are they saying on TV? Oh, I don't watch TV. Come on. What are you doing? What are they saying about this? What's Hollywood saying about this? Why, what, what happened? Call your pastor. Find out what... He's not there anymore. I don't know what, what's going on here, but call this one. I don't know. Where are they at? I, I don't know how that's going to unfold. What I do know is it is going to be obvious. There's going to be no one second-guessing anything. People are going to be at the same time jumping up and cheering and in, 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 in fear probably soiling their pants. Like, oh, no. The same kind of oh no that the people who hijacked those planes on 9-11 when they met King Jesus that day. Oh no. Oh no. That's Matthew 24, the end. So I've got a no, a be, and a do. It's uh, Scooby-Doo's fun little cousin, Noby-Doo. Um, so with this lesson... And what I do on my page, I marked up my own page. I wrote down what I need to know after reading this. Because you know what? You can have a preacher come at you and raise his voice and have fun with God's word. But your preacher isn't worth a darn if God's word hasn't kicked the tar out of him in preparation. To get to this point where he now is barking fire. You're like, well, geez, what's going on with this guy? No, what's going on with this guy is God kicked his butt. And he realized, I can't preach this. I can't teach this unless I change, unless I'm different. So there's things that I need to know, as in Joel, I need to know uh, the ways that I need to be and things that I need to do based upon Matthew 24. Now, if you like what I wrote down for myself, you say, well, that goes for me too. Have at it. Enjoy it. Go for it. Like, oh, that's me. But I expect you to apply this to yourself, to take this home, you know, take it with you into the bathroom, sit down there and just with a pen in hand and figure this out. I don't care when you do it. Put the phone down and figure this out. What do you need to know? How should you be and what must you do? For me, I need to know this. God's got this. 
Because life stinks. In fact, one of, my, one of my things I like to say, and it's a little bit crude, life sometimes sucks. Life sometimes really stinks, comma, but God is always faithful. And I like to say this, and Jesus uses the example, and in, in, in the book of Revelation, in the Old Testament, uses the example of the Alpha and Omega. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The lingua franca of that time was, was Greek, and so Alpha would be the A, and Omega would be like the Z, Although they had a Z, Zeta, but it was, okay, Alpha and Omega, okay, it'd be like us saying on the A and the Z. But we're not at the Z. We're not at the Omega. So what did I write down under no? I wrote down two things. God's got this. And the second thing I wrote down, I wrote down the B to the Y. Because brothers and sisters, if God is God at the A, you know what? There I go again. I hate the word if. Let's be bold. Since God is God at the A, and since God is God at the Z, he's God from the B to the Y. And maybe right now we're at the S, or we're at the K. I don't know where we're at in, in, in history, but God is God. God's got this. At no point am I saying to God, hold on, are you sure? We thought this out? Did you, uh, did you crowd test this theory for a second there, God? Or did you take a straw poll? Or did you? No. I need to know that God's got this. And I, I, need, I need to know that God is still God at, from the B to the Y. He's God and he's good. What about B? No, B, do. B, I need to be committed to Jesus. Come what may. Yeah, I know. That's the end song in the movie Moulin Rouge. Come what may. I had to watch that stupid movie all the time in the early days of my marriage, and Jen loved to watch that. You know, come what may. So you got Obi-Wan Kenobi, Ewan McGregor singing that song, and my mom once said, oh, that Ewan, he could sing for me any day. I'm like, all right, fine. Come what may, I'll love you until my dying day. Come what may. That's the kind of love I need to show to God. My commitment to Jesus needs to be a come what may kind of commitment. Otherwise, it is tempting to grow cold. That love can't grow cold and it'll still be called love. What's my do? Love, this one's kind of fortune cookie-esque. Love God's way for God's glory. The people I need to love, love them. The way I wish I need to love, who I need to love, how I need to love, why I need to love, do it. But not for my glory. Love God's way for God's glory. No, be, do. This is the Matthew class tonight, Matthew 24. Thanks for joining me. God bless.